care for some water? I'm thirsty. Where's Lips Manless? Hmm? Where's Lips Manless? Baby Lip! Baby Lip! Baby Girl! Baby Lip! Baby Girl! Baby Girl! Baby Lip! Okay, you heard him, Mrs. Green. That's his testimony. Okay, boys, get him out of here. His what? It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time hard-boiled cartoon detective, Andrew Raphael. This is Andy Raphael reporting. I am currently examining Madonna's reanimated corpse. (laughs) And today we're detectives taking on the prosthetically enhanced mob as we watched Warren Beatty's Plastic Skin City. I mean, Dick Tracy. But have we all overlooked the magnificence of this cartoon noir? Or does Warren Beatty's dick give us a shaft? Find out after the trailer. Let's go! Big Boy Caprice, Breathless Mahoney, Flat Top, The DA, Prune Face, Mumbles, Lips Manless, and The Blank are out to get the greatest detective of all time. I'm rubbing him out. I want him dead! Nobody touches Tracy but me. Tracy! 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 You mind if I call you Dick? I was beginning to wonder what a girl had to do to get arrested. Wearing that dress is a step in the right direction. For a tough guy, you do a lot of pansy things. You're under arrest. Aren't you gonna frisk me? Hey, copper, maybe you wanna look before you leap. When it's time to fight crime, he's your man. Walt Disney Pictures presents Warren Beatty as Dick Tracy. Whose side are you on? And Madonna as Breathless Mahoney. Are you gonna make a move? Do I have to do everything? I'm on duty. Dick Tracy. I'm on my way. From the men who brought us the worldwide phenomenon Ishtar comes Dick Tracy, a 1930s set detective noir with a lot of dicks and plenty of rubber. Dick Tracy is the renowned detective who is tasked with taking on a mob populated by a who's who of acting greats. And I really do mean who's who because with all of the prosthetics, I had no fucking clue who was playing who. Madonna stars as the rubber-faced femme fatale, and that's before the special effects were applied, who finds herself forced to sing for the ruthless cigar-licking boss, Big Boy. So, Andy, I've got to ask, are you a fan of Warren Beatty's Dick Adventure? (laughs) (laughs) The working title for this film, I do believe. It's one of those films where it's definitely a linchpin of my childhood, but I never actually saw the film. Yeah. Because, yeah, I don't know when I actually first saw this film. I think I... uh, must have been about 20, 20 years ago, something like that. Yeah. But yeah, it's always been on the list, and it's one of the uh, the last pulp adaptations that we haven't covered on this show. Yeah, it falls into that list of pulp adaptions in the wake of Batman that yeah. we have been through, and it is one of the last ones. I'd say maybe Dark Man being part of yeah, that as yeah, well. Yeah. But this one, especially with its setting, mm. feels it's uh, more akin to The Shadow and The Phantom. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would say as well, in terms of my experience with Dick Tracy, I remember it being not released, but I remember it being in places. 
I know there's a thing that we'll get into about the advertising of this film, like McDonald's and that type of thing, mm. but I remember the presence of the film Dick Tracy, but I can't specifically remember when it was released. I just remember that it was a film that was about when I was younger. Yeah. And then I didn't actually see it much like yourself until I was in my mid-teens. And even then, I hadn't seen it all the way through. I mentioned I, I caught it on TV when it was like 20 or 30 minutes in. It turned out it was actually like 30 minutes in watching it now. I realized <laughs> it was uh, the drive-by shooting was when I actually um, jumped into this film when I first watched it. But even going into it on this episode today, I was still going in very largely fresh mm. i remembered so very little about the overall story yeah in air quotes um <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i didn't really know much about it beyond the vague memory of the rubber-faced villains that's my main takeaway and i remembered that it was a proto sort of sin city as well yeah yeah which is something that we'll go into later as well I guess, as we do with every episode, it's, we're going to lay some context today. But Andy, you are, you've are you been doing some reading up on Dick Tracy. This was one of your films. It was, it's always been on the list as one of the films that you put forward for us to review. Yeah. And I'm going to hand it over to you to tell us a bit about the history of Dick Tracy and lead us up into what we think about the film. Yeah, so the film is based on the comic strip Dick Tracy, which was created in 1931 by a guy called Chester Gold. It was very popular in the 30s and f like 30s, 40s and 50s mainly. Uh, and I think there was a TV show in the 50s or no, no mid 40s actually. Yeah, it was very much like you know a contemporary of Batman and uh, those kind of characters and you know Superman and everything. So the actual film, its origins start somewhere in the mid 70s. He doesn't start with the Warren Beatty, but he did have an ambition to make a Dick Tracy film around that time. And in 1977, the rights to Dick Tracy, which were held by Tribune Media, were bought by two guys called Floyd Muttrux and Art Linson. Did you just make those names up? No. <laughs> and um, they tried to do a deal in 1980 with United Artists. And they started negotiations with Tom Mankiewicz, who yeah. had just come off Superman. That's a name that gets about when it comes to the uh, comic book adaptions in the uh, 70s and 80s. Yeah, because in a way, the, the gestational period that Batman had is very similar to Dick Tracy, in that Tom Mankiewicz was also involved in the early <laughs> 80s. I think just because he was the guy at that time, because he'd written Superman, and also because of his Bond credentials, he was very much in demand for this kind of film in yeah. the early 80s. So I would imagine anything like that that was vaguely comic booky or, or or larger than life would pass by him. But they fell through because the actual creator of Dick Tracy, Chester Gold, did not agree with what they wanted to do with the property. So then they took it to Paramount with Universal co-financing. And originally it was offered to Steven Spielberg, who I think turned it oh. down. I imagine he would have passed it on to John Landis. Yeah. And this is where the original script was created, which was written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. He would later go on to write Top Gun. Yeah, I don't think that script was particularly well received. And John Landis had to pass because of all the legal issues and stuff surrounding, surrounding the Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone the movie. Yeah, Twilight Zone the movie. <laughs> 
Ooh. But around this time, in terms of casting, Warren Beatty was in the picture, along with Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Richard Gere, Tom Selleck, and Mel Gibson. So they were all up for okay. the role of Dick Tracy around this time. There's certainly some in that list that I can see in the role more than mm-hmm. others. I think Mel Gibson isn't a fit for Dick Tracy. No. He can do hard-boiled, not detective, but that kind of like hard-boiled pulp fiction. I've seen Payback and he works in that. But fit in the actual mold of Dick Tracy, the, you know, white shining knight in the uh, city of corruption. Yeah. I don't think uh, that's one, (laughs) that's a role that's particularly suited to one Mel Gibson. No. Harrison Ford I can see in the role. I can see pretty much all the other names in the role. Yeah, Richard Gere and Tom Selleck, definitely, yeah. Yeah. So after this, it goes to Walter Hill with Joel Silver producing, and they do a new draft of the script, which I think is better received. And they do actually get into pre-production and, and like, building the sets. And Warren Beatty was actually cast in the role, and this would have been about 1984 or something like that. Oh, speaking of Walter Hill for a moment, with this type of film... Mm. Streets of Fire is another film that's very um, stylized in a not so much a Dick Tracy way, but it's a very stylized version of mobs and gangs and that type of thing as mm-hmm. well. It's another one of those films that's based primarily just in the one big set on a studio lot as yeah, well. Yeah. I can see that there's some crossover between Dick Tracy, what we eventually got, and what Walter Hill did with Streets of Fire. And I wonder if there was some friction there just in terms of the failure of Streets of Fire that led to Walter Hill leaving. Yeah, well, BT was actually cast as Dick Tracy in this version of the film, but they butted heads majorly because Hill wanted the film to be very violent and realistic, whereas BT wanted it to be a stylized comic strip yeah. adaptation which very much was a homage to the way that the comic strip looked and everything which is obviously ultimately mm-hmm. what we got so they actually both left the film and the film was shut down and the rights actually reverted back to Tribune in 1985 so we're basically back to the beginning after all this right but what happened was Warren Beatty still really wanted to make a film of Dick Tracy so he actually optioned the rights himself for three million dollars along with the script that had been written. So that's why Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. are still credited as writing the screenplay, even though they would have written it in the early 80s. Ah, right, got you, yeah. This is where Disney come into the picture, because, like I said previously, the film had been at Paramount. And during the mid-80s, when uh, Disney had a major management change with Michael Eisner and everybody, and they all came from Paramount. Michael Eisner brought his associate Jeffrey Katzenberg with him, and Jeffrey Katzenberg had remembered all this from his time at Paramount, and knowing that Warren Beatty had actually obtained the rights, got in touch, and it ended up being a film that was going to be developed at Disney. They offered him the deal where he would be starring, directing, and producing. I mean, I know it's a Buena Vista film, Yes. But is it still very much like owned by Disney or does it own elsewhere? Because it's not on Disney Plus or anything like that. And it seems to be kind of swept under the rug a little bit. Yeah, I imagine Disney owned the film, but I know that Warren Beatty still owns the rights to Dick Tracy. Because he's a bit like Dan Aykroyd these days where he uh, keeps touting that there's going to be a Dick Tracy sequel, which never happens. (laughs) So um, they had a contract agreement in place, which meant that, Because Warren Beatty had a reputation by this point 
on you know on films like Reds and stuff. So films yes. that he did directed had always got a bit out of hand, and obviously following Ishtar as well. Yep. <laughs> they had a very firm contract agreement in place, which basically meant that if the budget overran, it would be deducted from his fee. That that's a <laughs> if if you got a director that keeps overrunning his budget, I'll keep him in check. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it really did anything anyway because <laughs> they still ended up going over budget by quite a lot but um at this point bt and his uh associate Bo goldman rewrote the script but because of writers guild of america rulings they didn't get any credit for the screenplay which is a ongoing thing with the writers guild yeah. of america they have a very um very strict stipulation just in terms of what they deem to be the percentage of what you rewrite so you can change every single word that's on a page every single line of dialogue but if your characters and your story largely say the same thing but better you get none of the credit for mm, that that's yeah. just a polish you need to influence the story. You need to add characters. And I think that's also why we end up in a situation when you have scripts with so many different writers on board. Because in order to get the credit, the writer's got to change something. That's how I think you end up with this hodgepodge mess because people end up adding stuff to it. It don't necessarily need to be added, but they know it'll get them the credit. Mm. When you have these films with like a thousand different writers, that's normally what's taken place in my in my opinion and my estimation yeah. what I've read about it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the film was greenlit in 1988 with a budget of $25 million and BT's fee was $7 million plus 15% of the gross over $50 million. But the total negative spend ended up being $46.5 million and that yeah. included 35.6 actual expenditure, $5.3 million in studio overheads and $5.6 million in interests. And... Disney spent $48.1 million on advertising. Yowza! And $5.8 million in print. So the total cost of the film came to $101 million. Yeah. They've kind of made a rod for their own back in that way. It's, yeah. it's almost doomed to failure. Yeah. And I think this is where we need to start mentioning Batman more. Because around the time that this film was greenlit and when it was being made, Batman was very much in full swing and then when it was released in the summer of 89, not long after they actually wrapped filming on Dick Tracy, it just became a huge behemoth of a film. It was the film of 1989. Yeah. It was head and shoulders above anything else yeah. that was out that year. It had a very unique marketing campaign. It was what pretty much, I would say, the first film that had a what I would term as a modern advertising campaign because even yeah. films like star wars before it their merchandising and advertising they came in dribs and drabs it wasn't a um it wasn't a marketing campaign that had been conceived from the very beginning it was something that evolved and grew yeah. whereas batman they had a very clear strategy they termed it as a high concept strategy so you would have lots of different tie-ins with many mm -hmm. different things so you would have tie-ins to things like mcdonald's and other types yeah. of merchandise but then you would also get into other avenues which is why they involved someone like prince in the film and why you had two different soundtrack albums and you had yeah. the whole prince thing on one side and that was one way of getting people into the film uh, so they had a very sort of uh, multimedia marketing campaign so dick tracy wanted to do something similar well this is a strange one because it's hard to look at Dick Tracy and not see the uh, 
the influence of Tim Burton's film of Batman on it. Mm -hmm. But the production of Dick Tracy goes far beyond that as well. It just... um, I feel like there's a vision that's been retrofitted to fit the yes. Batman mold, yes. so to speak. And I think it's quite telling the fact that, yeah, the film was actually shot and completed before Batman itself came out. Dick Tracy was finished in May of 89, and I think Batman comes out in the June or July. So the actual film itself, that was never going to be directly influenced by Batman as such. Mm-hmm. It was only ever things that were going to happen in the post-production and then in the marketing of the film that were going to try yeah. and be like Batman anyway. So it was kind of caught between two stools, really. But I think there is one thing that they did which they must have heard about and then implemented it, which was very much like Batman. And um, that is the casting of Madonna in the role of Breathless Mahoney, which is something apparently she lobbied for because she agreed to do the film for scale. Oh, right. She was only actually paid $35,000 to do the film. And we're talking, is, is this like Madonna at the height of Madonna yeah. as well? Yeah, this is like so late 80s that's, Madonna. That's, yeah. that's something that's really really putting herself out there for this. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure whether the, the music deal was a separate thing. Yeah. This is a film that had three soundtrack albums, and she actually had her own album that came out of this, which was called yeah. um, I'm Breathless, which was kind of a... Uh, a tie-in to the movie, but kind of an album in its own right. So I imagine the $35,000 was just for her role in acting in the film, but I'm wondering whether she made money out of other things surrounding the film. I imagine so, especially with how much they hammered the advertising. Dick Tracy was a thing on the tour of her show. Yeah, Everything that followed, I imagine she recuperated a far bigger amount following the film yeah for a very short period yeah and i think also something that needs to be mentioned is that she was actually dating warren Beatty at the time so um, yeah it's one of those that's an image <laughs> that i don't want in my mind yeah i mean warren Beatty is a is a bit of a one yeah for that never shy from controversy <laughs> or that's notoriety sure. <laughs> yeah I'd say one thing that we haven't mentioned just in regards to one of the actresses in the film, this is one of the only things that I know about the making of this film, and that's that this was also another film that Sean Young yes. <laughs> was what was cast in and then and then dropped. I mean, there's a story behind it, and this is how I know about it. There's a not very nice story behind it, but it's another thing in common that it has with Batman. Yeah. I think with in particular to what actually happened, I think we would leave that as something happened yeah something not great happened anybody listening to this podcast who wants to know can always have a google have a look yeah. into the uh, the accusations and draw their own conclusions i've certainly drawn mine as well so yeah um, yeah we'll we'll leave that be and not and skirt our way around that particular topic <laughs> yeah on the filmmaking side i mean this is probably something we really need to talk about now because it heavily influences the look of this film which was the decision to make the film using a very limited colour palette, which was to use seven colours of all of the same shade. So all the reds, blues, greens, yellows, purples, they would all be the same shade. So anything that's green, it's that shade of green. Anything that's red, it's that shade of red. And that was done to match the look of the comic, which would have been printed in a very simple fashion. 
Yes. And like you say, when it comes to comic books as well, like decisions are made about certain characters. I remember that the Hulk originally was grey rather yeah. than green because it was easier to print grey than it was <laughs> green. And it's yeah. like many characters' decisions in terms of the colour palette of these comic books and designs that we're so very used to now have been made based on the idea of what's the cheapest colours available for printing. Yeah. So, so that seems to very much fit that bill. Yeah. Also, in keeping with this desire to make it feel like you're watching a comic all the characters that had grotesque designs in the comic were replicated in prosthetics yeah so they would look identical to their drawn counterpart the exception being the character of big boy caprice because Mm -hmm. al pacino didn't like the design that was in the comic so he sort of designed his own makeup for that I was going to say, jumping off from our The Hobbit episode, I thought that Big Boy Caprice, it felt like it was very much a goblin that was playing the role rather than <laughs> Al Pacino. Yeah. Like somebody had plucked some sort of horrible, grotesque goblin mm. orc thing from Middle Earth and said, here you go, you're playing a, a mobster. Yeah, yeah. That was his own design that he... Uh... <laughs> That he created because he didn't want to be put in a fat suit and things like that. So um, yeah, that's the only exception. But all the other characters look like they do in the comic book. So yeah, the other significant part of this, because of the, obviously they're going for a very stylized look, is that everything's shot on interior sets or a soundstage. And even what's on a soundstage is only partial because a lot of it is matte paintings. Yeah. And is there a minor bit of CGI as well nope. in terms of the opening? Because there's a there's this fantastic, um, it seems like a switch between a very rudimentary CGI cityscape in the foreground that goes to a map painting and then mm. to a set. And I, I wanted to know if there was any, any whatsoever early CGI involved in it because it, it looked like it. Nope, there's no CGI or any digital compositing in this film whatsoever. I was it's all analogue. Very well done. So I think what that would have been would be a combination of a, maybe a moving mat and some models. Yeah. Model, yeah. Had to have been model. Yeah. But the VFX were headed up by Michael Lloyd and Harrison Ellenshaw, who I think is the son of Peter Ellenshaw, who is a very, very famous matte painter for Disney. Yeah. So I think they created about 57 glass matte paintings for this film. Yeah. Yeah, and then the rest of it is just done with uh, with models, like the bit with the train is mm-hmm. a, just a scale model. I remember when I um, went to Disney World as a three or four-year-old, they did a demonstration of how they did that on an overhead monitor. And that was the scene that they used, which was that bit where the kid crosses the railway line and the train comes over. And they actually had in storage at the time in, in MGM Studios and Disney World the train that they used in the model shop. Oh, cool. You could actually see a lot of models that they used for Dick Tracy at that time. Mm. And I think that's, in a way, why the film, for me, even though I never actually saw it as a kid, it's still very much a large part of my childhood because at Disney World and the Disney parks around the early, very early 90s, so you're talking 19, 1991, this yeah. was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Especially at MGM Studios, they lent heavily into promoting Dick Tracy at the theme parks. So this will be a good time to just talk about that marketing campaign because... It, well, they were very much of the opinion that they couldn't let this dick flop. No, no. They <laughs> lent really heavily into this marketing. So I've just made a list of all the different things that they did to sort of emulate the marketing campaign that Batman had, but almost like try and top it as well. They really 
did yeah. a lot. So you had McDonald's tie-ins. You had a 2020 interview with Warren Beatty. They put a Roger Rabbit short in front of the film to attract more kids. Oh, shit. Is that where one of the Roger Rabbit shots come from? Because yeah. I've seen those shots. I remember yeah. watching them when I was a kid as well. Is that from Dick Tracy? Yeah, one of them was in front of Dick Tracy. Oh, right. Oh, fantastic. They had two TV adverts with actor Charlie Cosmo aimed directly at the kids. They had 26 additional TV adverts. <laughs> they did a deal with Playmates Toys and created 14 Dick Tracy action figures. Mm-hmm. They had a musical stage show that played at both Disneyland and Disney World. Yeah. They had the Disney stores at that time, which heavily sold Dick Tracy merchandise. There was a novelization. There was a yeah. graphic novel. There were several different video games on different platforms. And there was a theme park ride in the design phase called Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers. Yes, I remembered seeing some of the uh, Disney stage show yeah. on a Disney Resort VHS. You know when they yeah. you used to uh, get the brochure for Disney and they used yeah. to send you out a VHS copy? One of my friends had it, an old one. And there was a little snippet of Dick Tracy on there as well as part of the advertisement. Yeah, And that's also what I remember it from from my childhood. That was when I was like seven years old. Yeah. But yeah, that's the thing. I can't remember seeing it at the cinema. And I used to go to the cinema a lot as a kid. I, I know I definitely didn't see it there. But I remember Dick Tracy being a thing that was everywhere. I knew the poster. And I remember seeing that in the video shop as well. But yeah, I remember it just um, it having a presence I want to say I remember the McDonald's toys, but um, I probably had a few. Yeah, but I never, never really got around to seeing it until I was until I was a teen. Yeah, but the theme parks, especially, that was the part of the marketing campaign which Batman couldn't replicate because it didn't have that outlet. Whereas yeah. with Disney being behind it, the theme parks thing was a a big deal, and this was kind of the the start of tying into theme parks i think roger rabbit was the first one where they they tied they tried to tie things into the theme parks um because obviously these days everything is ip led in the theme parks yeah and for the longest time especially with mgm studios in disney world when it first opened it was heavily um roger rabbit uh, influence there was a lot of stuff in there that was roger rabbity and then very quickly afterwards dick tracy i remember there was a there was a thing on the tram tour when it was mainly a studio tour where the tram would actually get held up by a couple of gangsters from Dick Tracy and they did this whole little show. Were they rubber-faced gangsters? I can't remember. I think there was some sort of makeup anyway, but there was like this little gangster and they were all in the uh, the one-colour suits and everything like that. So it was, yeah. it was just part of the tram tour designed to advertise the film. But there was this dark ride that was in development at the time and it's one of the great lost Disney rides. I mean, there's many great lost Disney rides if you actually go into it. It's kind of quite annoying when you see what's actually not been built versus what mm-hmm. they designed. Disney World should be a lot better than it is. Because uh, <laughs> there's so many... When you hear about there's like there was a whole Roger Rabbit land that they were building, there was a whole Muppet land that they were going to build, and Dick Tracy was another one of these things that was um, in development in the early 90s, and it was because of things like uh, the failure of Euro Disney, which put a stop to all that. Yeah. Eisner strikes again. I think it was going to be some sort of like high-speed chase through the city and you're getting like all the gangsters trying to shoot you and things like that. So it would have been quite exciting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is as well, looking at the film and the uh, the sets as well that are used for the film, 
and the setup that you have, you could probably make a very good Dick Tracy ride out of that. That mm. would be rather visually striking as well. Yeah. That I think could be potentially quite interesting. Yeah. Just concluding that marketing strand, there were several people at the time that thought that this film had been overhyped. Yes. This is something I do know. Warren Beatty is amongst them. Yeah. <laughs> Saying that this film was... Um, I guess they saturated the market with Dick Tracy-type yeah. merchandise and marketing that when it actually came to the film, nobody wanted to see it because they were fed up of the sight of Dick Tracy. Yeah. I think they were just trying to market the film and sell it as something that it wasn't. Yeah. Which, to be honest, it, you can have a good film if it's marketed in a particular way audiences feel betrayed. One of the most recent, this is something in horror that you see all the time, but one of the most recent, I really enjoy having the rug pulled out from under me for marketing, Yeah. but Hereditary is one that I, I found. That, has, that got like, I don't think it got an F cinema score, but it was a very yeah. low one, like D or something, because <laughs> it was marketed as being like, oh, is, could this be like the new Exorcist? Yeah. And it really wasn't. No. It really wasn't. It was about a family in horrendous mourning. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, so... I can see that happening with Dick Tracy as well. <laughs> Dick Tracy and Hereditary. Never thought I would mention <laughs> those two things on the same podcast. Uh, but um, yeah, there's one thing I do need to mention, I think maybe now, that I don't think you know about. Watching the film through again, and actually watching it through not knowing this, and then finding out about it later, I was like, ah, yeah, this, is, this all makes sense to me now. So you've been keeping a piece of information yeah. from me. Before we started recording... Andy mentioned if I knew a certain fact, and I don't. He said that he's going to wait until a certain point in the episode and reveal what that is to me that makes sense of this whole film. This is the Jar Jar Binks. It's the key to understanding this. Yeah, because I was watching the film through this time round, having not seen it for quite a long time, and um, watching it, I was like, yeah, this film's been put together in a really odd way. It feels like it's been cut to ribbons. And yeah, I just had that thought whilst watching the film, and then when I actually went and looked... The original cut of this film ran to two hours, 15 minutes. And the film was trimmed to one hour, 45 minutes. So half an hour the film right. was cut at the behest of our good old friend, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberg. I knew you were going to say it. I knew it. Yeah. And it shows so badly. <laughs> it really does. And there's, there's a particular note that I made for a montage in the film. Yeah. <laughs> there's a montage that just, it doesn't hang. For a film that is like really well designed and to the point in which you think like each and every shot has been i would say not meticulously planned but it's been very planned out and thought out the transitions have been thought out and the scenes roll into each other and that type of thing all the kind of thing that you want from a film and yet there are moments when all of a sudden it abandons all of that and there's a montage as well that every kind of fade between it doesn't feel like it has a place. Like the scenes don't feel like in the montage they should be fading into each other. They feel like they've the shots from certain scenes that have been just taken away. Yeah, it's like you can tell that the scenes themselves have not been shot for montage. They have been shot as a normal sequence and they've been turned into a montage in post. Exactly, yeah. And you just feel like you're watching like someone's just gone fast forward through the middle of the film yes it's really odd and also I, I don't think the song helps either because the song jars with what's going on in the in the actual visuals and the action yeah it's soldier all over again yeah i mean i actually have a major issue with the songs in this film anyway because yeah me too i think the yeah. film has a real problem with itself that it doesn't really know what it wants to be identity crisis is it a musical or is it not 
it's kind of a musical, but it's not enough that it feels like the songs are just in the way a lot of the yes. time. I mean, to put myself out there just in terms of my opinion of the film as well, because we're going to get into that now, I do actually like Dick Tracy. I found it quite enjoyable, but I thought that it's another one of those films. It's, it's very ambitious. There's a lot going on in terms of the ambitions of what they're trying to make. It's very distinctive, but it has flaws and flaws that can't be overlooked. And I would say that one of them, like chief amongst them really is for me, one of the things that I said, like in terms of it being retrofitted to fit a Batman mold, with Batman you had the whole Prince music as well going through that film. I feel like that's something that they heard about and decided mm. to do with this with the Stephen Sondheim stuff so that they could say that, you know, we can release a separate CD of yeah. Stephen Sondheim songs performed by Madonna. And that side of it doesn't fit with the, even with the like cartoonish, noirish detective stuff. No. I think a couple of songs maybe, but as you say, it's teetering a line between, well, what do you want it to be? Do you want it to be a musical or not? Mm. I mean, there's a whole section dedicated to just Al Pacino. <laughs> What <laughs> like in this more more <laughs> yeah, exactly. more more it goes on for like ten minutes. There's an extended sequence of him doing a rehearsal <laughs> with these girls, and it goes on forever. Yeah, what's it adding? I was like, what am I learning with this scene? <laughs> but yeah, that feels like it's there just to justify the musical number that follows. Yeah, I'd say the first half of the movie, especially, is um, a mess. It's got a really odd pace to it it's either yeah it's too long in the places where it should be brief but then it's really brief in the places where it should be more developed and also because of that it just feels really uninvolving Mm -hmm. because it's just the pacing's all wrong and i think that's probably due to the them having to edit the film at the last minute i agree with you but it's like i think that they could have probably trimmed some minutes out of this film oh yeah yeah in what's already, like, what they left with. It's like they've edited it down the wrong avenue. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) They've had an idea of what they wanted the edit to be, and they've pursued it the wrong way. Because, like I say, you could cut several minutes out of that Al Pacino scene entirely. All you need to establish with that scene of him running about slapping Madonna and saying, more, more, is just needed to illustrate that he's not a good man and he's forcing, like, you can do it in a minute. Yeah, but you know what I think? I think they've been told... And this seems a very Jeffrey Katzenberg thing to do. More Madonna. I reckon they've been told you have to take half an hour out of this film, but you're not allowed to touch anything with Madonna in it. Yeah. And you're not allowed to touch any of the songs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where all the action's gone. Yeah. So you're just taking out the dick. Because for a film called Dick Tracy, there's very little Dick Tracy action going on. That's it. In yeah. this film. It's an old fashioned pull out job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got to pull out the dick yeah so you've only really got half a dick so what you're telling me is this dick's been cut yeah (laughs) it's been (laughs) circumcised yeah this is a fully cut dick yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) i promise there's only so many dick jokes i can make during this episode i've actually Uh, written in my notes that um i wonder how many i can get through but yeah let's leave that one there for now yeah I can see, now that you mention it as well, I can definitely see how this film has been edited to ribbons. Mm. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. I think it's been one of those ones where don't touch Madonna, don't touch the musical numbers, take it out of everything else. And in a way, the story suffers for me because it's... Yeah. I wouldn't say that it's difficult to follow. It's just that there's not much of it. There's not much of anything really going on. It's Dick Tracy wants to get big boy and the trials and tribulations of 
of that whole investigation. Yeah. Oh, man. To be honest, we are like... I don't know why I'm talking about the editing at this point when really I should be talking about the grotesque monstrosities that are all of the mobster characters. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning, really. I want to go over a couple of things that I do like. Yeah. I do like the colour palette. We've mentioned mm-hmm. that before. I like the design of the film. I like Warren Beatty, and I like especially Glenn Headley as well. Yeah. They're all great. There's a lot that I do like about it. The music as well, Danny Elfman, is fine. Mm-hmm. It's not Batman level, but it's pretty good. But yeah, I would say that there came a point in the film because of the grotesque way in which all of the villains look with their giant rubber heads in varying <laughs> degrees of size mm. that when it actually came to the human characters, they began to look fake to me as well. <laughs> I, I was like, the, well, normally when you have a film where everybody's wearing prosthetics, the longer it goes on, you start to believe in it, the authenticity of it. This had the reverse effect. I stopped believing that Warren Beatty was real. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, he stopped motion. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think he was wearing a lot of makeup. Everybody feels like they're wearing a lot of makeup. Because he was uh, 52 at the time. And not like Robert Downey Jr. 52, where no. it's like, you know, you can get away with it now. He's like <laughs> old school 52. Yeah, yeah. That's like today 70. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of grotesque villains in the film, and um, it's pretty much all the grotesque villains from Dick Tracy as well, because the idea was that because Warren Beatty didn't know whether he was going to get a sequel he decided to use all of the villains in this film. So every single gangster and um, henchman has appeared in the comic strip as their own individual character. So that's the big difference between the film and the comic book, is that in the comic book, Dick Tracy generally faced each one of these villains on a one-to-one basis. Yeah. So characters like Flat Top and Prune Face and Little Face and things like that. James Khan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mumbles. Yeah. They were all their own individual villains. There was no sort of infrastructure like there is in the film where it's yeah. all headed up by Big Boy and like you have the rivalries and stuff. That's all invented for the film. Do you genuinely think that in that scene where James Khan makes a cameo that they originally intended him to have some sort of prosthetic and he came in and went, I'm not wearing that fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are not putting that fucking thing on my face. I'm coming in, sitting down, doing my line, and I'm going to sit in that car that explodes. Bye-bye. Uh, well, there's a big discrepancy as well, apparently, because um, the villains that appeared in the 30s strip were very much more normal-looking. And then apparently when right. it got to the 1940s, the villains started looking a lot more grotesque and stylized so i think that that's why there's a mix between the two so some of the villains are older villains that look more you know humanoid whereas the um the later villains in the 40s strip do look more exaggerated so i think that's where it comes into play so james khan may be playing one of the 30s villains rather than one of the 40s villains yeah I will say, maybe this is controversial to say, but I um, I quite like the grotesqueness of these horrible mob monstrosities. My only issue is with it is I think there are too many of them. Yeah. Because they start, it's, it loses impact when everybody is this horrible monstrosity, grotesque thing. You needed Al Pacino to be like the main one. Yeah. And maybe a couple of like minor additions, maybe like Flat Top the Henchman, you keep him. But like Al Pacino needed to be the main one that every time we couldn't wait to see him on screen because of how horrible and grotesque he looked in this world. But because everybody looks like that, 
it starts to lose its impact. Yeah, and you'll see you start to lose track of who's, who's who because <laughs> I know there's two characters, there's, there's Prune Face and another one that look very similar to each other. I was going to mention, I was, I was sure like one of them died and then he came back. Yeah, but it's actually a different character. Yeah, there, there's two characters there. I can't remember the name of the other one. And also, again, it makes it really difficult to like know what actor is playing what as well. Like, yeah, I got through over an hour into the film and then realized that James Tolkien was in the film. <laughs> Weirdly enough, when I saw the opening credits to the film, and I went, "Oh, look, Mandy Patinkin's in this film." Yeah, nice. So, I spent the whole film like thinking, "Oh, which which horrible monstrosity is he?" And I kept on looking for all of the uh, all of the grotesque villains. He's the fucking piano player. Yeah, he hasn't got any prosthetics on at all, and I didn't even notice him. No, I actually <laughs> like, forgotten that he was even in the film, and then I read up on him, and I was like, "Oh yeah, it makes sense now that he's like." <laughs> He's like a, a chief proponent of Stephen Sondheim. And um, yeah. he's like all musical theatre. And it's just something because he's so well known for doing things like Homeland and even things like Alien Nation. Yeah. That I completely forget that he's actually a musical theatre guy. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, he's in a role that's rather thankless as well. For somebody like Mandy Patinkin as well. I mean, Princess Bride's already been and gone at this point, hasn't it? To be honest, I think his role is all on the cutting room floor. Because yeah, maybe, yeah. It seems to me that there's some sort of subplot there involving his um, love for Madonna. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be there anymore. You only really get it in the songs. Yes, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. I feel like there's a lot that's missing. Dick Van Dyke's another one. Mm-hmm. His part is mainly on the cutting room floor because <laughs> they kind of build him up to be this big double-crossing villain and um, he has very little screen time considering it's Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> Penis von lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say about Dick Van Dyke, he hits the floor when he gets shot like he's yeah. a sack of potatoes. When you look at him, and I know he's he's like sixty years old at this point, I was like, Jesus Christ, old man, you've <laughs> like that is how you end up with dead hips. Yeah. Please don't do that again. <laughs> I mean, even now, like he was in that Mary Poppins film, he's like ninety years old and he's still dancing on a table in the last yeah. Mary Poppins film. I don't know how much of that was Jim Henson puppetry. <laughs> But <laughs> I can see the, the sticks, the little sticks holding oh, up his arms. Man. Just, <laughs> but yeah, he can still throw himself about. Yeah, I really like his uh, dedication to that stunt, just hitting the ground like a sack of potatoes. Yeah, that's the thing with this film. I feel that when the film really works is when there's some action, like that whole car shootout towards the end is one of the best bits of the whole film. Yeah, it comes alive. Yeah, and it's like. Oh, I'd love to watch what was cut because I do get the feeling that a lot of what was cut was the really exciting stuff. And going by what's in the montage, that's probably a correct assumption. Yeah. Because I feel like the um, yeah the songs cripple the film. I think that and also having the kid in there directs attention away from Dick Tracy himself a lot of the time because I feel it's one of those moves where they've put the kid in there. He was obviously a comic book character, but because yeah. it's so told through his eyes but not that they've just put him in there to try and appeal towards the kids and um i don't think it really works if you felt more organically part of the story yeah like he was a um like you say the eyes through which we see this film were introduced to the world of dick tracy mm. you know it's through this kid's eyes that we see the hero that is dick tracy but because it keeps on losing track of the kid anyway yeah and he starts to just appear at random moments like especially at the end he comes out of nowhere to save the day yeah like he's not even established as like chasing the car or anything like that he just no comes out of nowhere to save the day and uh again maybe that's something on the cutting room floor maybe it's something that they were forced to put in there anyway just to have that 
audience surrogate for the uh, children in the audience. But yeah, I don't think they did the most of that. I don't mind the actor. I think he's fine. The, the kid from uh, Hook. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a matter of, oh, the, the acting was so annoying that it... No, no, it's more his place in the film. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And normally, man, kids can break films as well. Yeah. I'm thinking that there's a scene on the cutting room floor when he's been informed that he's got diabetes, so... Because uh, <laughs> he's eating so much. <laughs> I don't know what the thing is with him eating is. Like, it doesn't really seem to have much of a payoff. No, uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere, does it? It's just... No. He's a poor kid, now he's eating, and... That's it? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he eats <laughs> Big Boy at the end? Yeah. His handler at the beginning seems to be like a uh, a prototype from um, Marv from Sin City. <laughs> yes. Yeah, maybe that's a good time to talk about Sin City. That is something to talk about. I don't think that we would have Sin City in its form without Dick Tracy. No, not at all. That's what I mean about this film. I do think it has flaws, and I think it has heavy flaws. But I also think that for what it does, it's ambitious and it's also influential, mm. as we found with a whole genre of filmmaking that followed. I mean, not just Sin City, but specifically as well, The Spirit yeah. feels like it even more so part of this world. And I would say that to the point where I was watching this film and I began to think, wow, Sin City is very much, maybe not quite, but it's <laughs> a bit of a ripoff, really. Yeah, yeah. Especially with, um, like you say, Marv as a character design. Yeah. I could see him in this film. I think even down to the sort of all-star nature of the film as well, where you've got very big names in small roles, yeah. and they crop up every now and again, that model seems to have been taken wholesale in the original Sin City. Yeah. Just the idea of trying to make the film resemble the comic book as much as possible. This is the first film that really tried to do that. And I think it was quite brave to do that at the time because there was no precedent for it. No, no. And um, I would say that's probably one of the film's virtues in a way because I kind of feel like, yeah, they're trying to bridge something rather than just make a run-of-the-mill film yeah. out of the material. They tried to make it something else that shares some DNA with the comic strip itself. Mm. I mean, we talk about on this podcast, and we have done many times, about mediocre films or middle-of-the-road films that don't have any ambition and they kind of are just happy to find a middle ground we've talked about it in relation to marvel we've talked about it in relation to a lot of films but when we look at this film and yes sure it's got its faults and it's got its failures that we cannot overlook but there is at least still a vision here mm. and we talk about this often there's, a, there's an ambition here from uh, warren Beatty of all people is not who i expected to bring this type of vision to a film to have somebody who's actually this uh, very visual storyteller in terms of the world that he's setting up and how he wants that to be executed. I didn't expect that from Warren Beatty uh, as an mm. actor. I expected it to be more of like him to be more interested in the characters and the talking and the dialogue and that type of thing. In a way, I feel like, again, this may be a proponent of the editing, but he's got lost in the world design a little bit. Mm. But I think that we need to give props here for just how much is done in trying to do something that's different in terms of the world that they're establishing. I mean, I've just had a look online as well in relation to Sin City, and the first comic book for that did come out in 1991. Yeah. I think as well that Sin City, anyway, the comic book was influenced by Dick Tracy. Yeah, and also because the spirit was a contemporary of Dick Tracy. Yes, yeah. You know, the spirit, the phantom, the shadow, yeah. all those guys. And yeah, so I guess it makes sense that when it comes to the actual film that 
in playing to the comic book style of that particular comic book Sin City that yes it's going to play into the world of Dick Tracy as mm. well it's just like a harder, more grittier, gorier version of that. It's an extreme version of that. Even I can't yeah, believe I'm yeah. talking about it as being a more extreme version of Dick Tracy, <laughs> a, a film in which a man has a giant head and a tiny face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, I still don't think that we would have the Sin City films in their form without Dick Tracy. No. Even in terms of the timing makes sense. Even... Um... I mentioned it before in another podcast, but even something like Into the Spider-Verse, the very idea to try and attempt to yeah. recreate the aesthetics of a comic book, it all stems from this particular film. And in a way, I feel like this film is kind of slightly hampered by the way that they've had to make the film at the time because yeah. I think the thing that stands out is although all the sets look the part and the costumes and the prosthetics and the way that it's put together in terms of the matte paintings, the actual cinematography mm. is rather conventional. And because you don't have things like digital grading at the time, if you regraded this film now or did it again, you'd be ramping up those colours or making it look yeah. like blends better because you've got all this world and it kind of looks a bit fake but because it's you've got all this naturalistic yeah, yeah. photography and it doesn't quite mesh together yeah it's just held back by what they had to work with at the time yeah and that's a uh, vittorio storora <laughs> i can't say his name storora Sto- of apocalypse now fame <laughs> of apocalypse now fame and the bird with the uh, the crystal plumage <laughs> and ishtar <laughs> and of you can, a can't forget Ishtar. Ishtar. but um he was like a very established and very well respected cinematographer yeah but i will say that i agree with you i don't think that there's enough uh, i think they've played it like in a panel way kind of thing that they're trying to recreate panels and there's yeah. moments where it's very striking but there are moments as well where i don't think the camera moves enough or no. there's enough creativity in the camera movement and that's part of the issue for me that I wish we had freedom to move around in this world and to see more of it. And I also think that the world itself, because of the way that it's been designed, again, I very much appreciate. I think there's a lot to love about the design of the film in, in that sense. But I also think that I don't know if this is a budgetary thing or if it's just simply something that they wanted to go for as a stylistic choice but it feels like a world that isn't populated by anybody. It feels like the Avengers. Yeah, it feels quite uh, small, and, doesn't it? Yeah, it, exactly. It feels like um, the Avengers and not the um, Avengers Assemble, but the Avengers with Emma Thurman and Ray Fiennes. Oh, yeah. In that, that is based in a London where you never see another person or another car. Yeah. This very much feels like it's a world that isn't populated other than by gangsters yeah, yeah. or mobsters. There's nobody in between. I wish we got to see more of the world. It, it's like what we talked about with Batman Returns in terms of it being based on a soundstage set, but it's still at least being a you know a cool looking film because of that. This is a cool looking film, but the set, the world feels even smaller than that. It feels yeah. like it takes place on a corner. Yeah, it's a bit odd as well because the film seems so set around the club, and I feel like the interior and exterior design of the club isn't exciting enough. No, no, I agree. To justify its placing, like you know, it's, it's probably about half the film, which yeah. is taking place around that singular location inside and out. And um, it should pop more and it doesn't. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't never notice that, yeah, there aren't any other people around. <laughs> Just yeah. seems to be Dick Tracy and the cops and then the gangsters and then a couple of other characters. 
the hard day of the cars on the roads and yeah. it feels very empty. There's nobody like going to the cinema or something like that, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. I'm not sure whether that's an artistic choice because I've not looked at the actual strip myself to see whether there are any background characters, like and whether mm. that's like a budgetary thing in the comic where they only drew the actual characters yeah. and just very basic backgrounds. It could be something to do with that. That's what I'm thinking, if it was a, like a stylistic choice to just capture that. For example, the shot that came to mind in regards to that, where I first really noticed it very early on, was when Dick Tracy and his beau, oh, what's her name? I forgot her name, Glenn. Glenn oh, Hedley, Tess Trueheart. Tess Trueheart, yes, of course. When they're walking back from the uh, press conference with Dick Tracy about, um, I can't remember what the press conference was about, but they're walking home. And, oh, they're asking Dick Tracy if he's going to run for mayor or anything like that. And mm. they're walking home down a street and, on, like, on a corner, there's a drugstore. But they're the only people on the road and there's no cars on the road whatsoever. No. And it's just them alone on this very empty set. And that's the first time I noticed it. And from that point, I couldn't help but notice how empty the world felt. Yeah. Even though I really liked it. I keep saying, even though I really liked the design and the, the ambition behind that design. Mm. And in a way, I think the film... For me, most of the third act works. It's the part of the film that that works the most because it's yeah, the, yeah. those kind of issues don't draw attention to themselves because there's a lot more action going on at that part of mm-hmm. the film and there's just a lot more kinetics and going from location to location. I love the um, yeah the car shootout. I love the bit where Big Boy, he's got Tess Trueheart. He's underground in that cart thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that goes on for a while as well. I don't think the, uh, the clock house climax works so well actually but all the bits up until then worked really well for that 15-20 minutes mm. I got the feeling that Pacino was just allowed to ad lib yeah um, <laughs> and go a bit crazy at the end there because he says some lines I wrote one down he said there's a moment where the camera like slowly tracks in on him he's like I, I had a thought it's gone and then that's it that's that's all he says then, oh, and then he comes I, back I, I and wrote he says some of these her, down the gold he says don't you know I've always loved you yeah and I was like you've never met her until this point no. I'm having a thought it's coming it's gone and then there's another <laughs> yeah. one I said uh, um, they say I kidnapped you and I didn't kidnap you but I'm kidnapping you now <laughs> <laughs> I do like those bits, though. They're really, yeah. You could tell Al Pacino's having a lot of fun. You could see Al Pacino's having fun. There's a lot of personality there. He considers Dick Tracy to be like a, a big part of his life, and it was a big deal at the time. And he was saying how strange it is that it's vanished off the face of the earth. Yeah. It rarely gets talked about at all these days. We all go into this with the stats and facts, but... It's not a flop. No. I was of the opinion that it was a flop because of the way that it's been treated since and the way that the uh, studio, the way that Disney have seemed to have just brushed it to one side and yeah. almost almost like treat it with the same type of treatment that you would receive for like an embarrassment. Let's forget we went all in on that, yeah. you know? And I think it's really strange that this has happened for this particular film considering that it wasn't that... It, 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 was, it probably didn't make in, enough money, but it no. didn't... It wasn't a dire flop that just bombed out. People went to see it, and mm. it made money on home video as well. Mm. So why hasn't it had 
DVD releases, Blu-ray releases. Even now, you would probably get a good collector's edition Blu-ray out there for, mm. you know, for like a cult market. Definitely, hundred percent. And Disney certainly have the power to do so. But it's not even on Disney Plus. No. So what's the issue with Dick Tracy? Why have they just brushed it under the rug? I think there must be something more at play behind the scenes on that. Yeah, film. there is something as well. Like when the film was being made, it was being made as a um, a Walt Disney Pictures film. And it wasn't until a little bit later on they moved it to Touchstone. Ah, right. Because I felt that the film was um, a bit racy to have the Disney name attached to it. So they moved it to Touchstone. I understand that. When Disney Plus first came out, it did have that issue. It seems to be uh, ironing itself out a little bit at the moment. They're branching it out a little bit more. Introducing Star as a um, as an option as well. Yeah. But anyway, let's talk about Ishtar. <laughs> yes! <laughs> What's, oh, what's the beginning? Of, it's a uh, one, two, three, four, four, two, three, four. There were just a couple of songwriters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to uh, be honest, I'm surprised that Disney even gave Warren Beatty this film following Ishtar. Yeah, because that was a uh, a major major flop, and this film is like a reunion in some way because you've got the same cinematographer, the same star, and then also you've got Dustin Hoffman doing it as a favor man that's that yeah that's something we haven't even got into as well dustin hoffman as mumbles ah but um, he's my favorite part of the film he's a kind of like wholesome baddie as well yeah every time he's on screen like no mumbles (laughs) the bit where dick tracy slows down the tape yeah it says big boy did it and then he starts crying then starts to talk normally that's the best part of the whole film for me it is is, it is magic And does he say something as well, like, good luck, Dick Tracy? Yeah. And I was like, oh, I like Mumbles. Give him yeah. a badge. <laughs> but yeah, this is the, definitely the Ishtar reunion that everybody was all uh, chomping at the bit for. Yeah. I mean, how does that happen? Because Ishtar, we talk about bombs on this show, and often when we talk about a bomb, like, for example, when we talked about Waterworld on Best Forgotten Movies, and... When you actually start to look into it, it's like, yeah, it didn't make all of its money back, but it did later on. Or Fishtar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or Fishtar, as it was called at yeah. the time. They're not true flops, like, in terms of truly, this will never make its money back. Ishtar is a flop, like, in that way. And then immediately following it, Warren Beatty's given Dick Tracy. Mm. I mean, I guess him buying the rights, he's... Cause the, the making of this film, and from what you've been through, it seems like Warren Beatty's wanted to be involved in it for some time. Yeah. And he's kind of like forced the hand for him to direct. Because mm. it sounds like he's been involved and wanting to direct far before he was actually allowed to. Yeah. And it does sound in the way that they did the deal on this film that pretty much all of his fee disappeared <laughs> whilst making the film. And the only money yeah. actually made off it was obviously from the gross... Which would have been quite significant because when we go into the numbers, even though it didn't make lots of money, if he made a fifteen percent of the gross after fifty million, he's still making some change. Holy! So, shit. Um, I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I would say whatever money that he put into the budget of this film, he's still making back on the uh, yeah on the back end. He seems like he made a lot of money off Dick on the back end. Oh. <laughs> yes, get it. Another one. Ding. All right. Um, talking about. Warren Beatty's famous dick. Yeah. I just um, happened to 
glance upon his Wikipedia entry, right? Mm. And there's a whole section about personal life. About his dick. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a whole section about per- his personal life, which is normally like the bit where you get a biography of um, whomever you're looking up. Yeah. And for his page in particular, it has before marriage actresses that Warren Beatty had previously dated. Yeah, it has its own page. <laughs> Allow me to go through a few. So prior to marrying Benning, that's Annette Benning, Beatty was notorious for his large number of romantic relationships that received generous media coverage, having been linked to over 100 female celebrities. <laughs> the following women reportedly dated Beatty. <clears throat> oh my God. Tracy Adams, Isabel Ajani, Carol Alt, Eve Babbitts, Diane Baker, Bridget Bardot, Justine Bateman, Candice Bergman, Colleen Brennan, B.B. Buell, Maria Callas, Claudia Cardinale, Judy Kahn, Leslie Curran, Cher, Greta Chi, Julie Christie, Connie Chung, Mariana Sisagana, Pat Cleveland, John Collins. That's just up to sea. Let me go for a few more. Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia. (laughs) You know what? I was just thinking you could release a book called The Warren B.T. Dick Dictionary. Britt Eklund, oh, um, Jane Fonda, Jermaine Greer, uh, Melanie Griffith, Daryl Hannah, Goldie Horn, Brooke Hayward, Margot Hemingway, Barbara Hershey, Diane Keating, Christine <laughs> Keeler, Jacqueline Kennedy, Diane Ladd, <laughs> Vivian Lee, Ali McGraw, <laughs> Elle McPherson, Madonna, uh, Princess Margaret. That's a second princess. <laughs> so that's basically, ev- it's basically everyone. <laughs> Linda McCartney. Oh, God. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave, Diana Ross, Michelle Phillips, Gene, um, oh, Seberg, Seberg, uh, whatever her name is. I uh, forgot her name. Yeah, about to pronounce it, but yeah. Barbara Streisand, Twiggy, Liv Ullman, Vanity. <laughs> vanity! Vanity. Man, I thought he was a bit old for Vanity. Yeah. I guess not. It ends with the famous Natalie Wood and also Lana Wood. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Raquel Welsh. Man, that is one famous dick. Yeah. I have read out about half the names. <laughs> His dick's got its own autobiography. <laughs> I think it's got its own disease. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, at one point in his life, he's been referred to as patient zero. I 100% <laughs> guarantee. Oh, dear. Like, can you imagine, right? Like, if he got a phone call today from the doctors saying, oh, I'm afraid the results have come in, uh, Mr. BT. Uh, you've got this sexually transmitted disease. You're going to have to contact everybody that you've been, <laughs> and that you've had, that you've had a sexual relationship. Can you imagine just how long you'd be on the phone? Oh yeah, and that's just in the last six <laughs> months. So <laughs> <laughs> every single woman in the care home and a couple of men, maybe. So that's yeah, that's Warren Beatty for you. Oh, uh, he's a character. <laughs> oh, he is the lovable ch- Warren Beatty. I think he's a he's an oddity. In that it's clear he's got personality, it's clear he's got charm and screen presence. But if you said to me, like, what's a Warren Beatty film? I don't know. Well, you'd have to go really far back, wouldn't you? You'd have to go and say... Oh, oh like it, to Bonnie and Clyde. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. That yeah. kind of thing. Or even, like, the Parallax view. I can see I yeah. can see that. But in terms of what followed, I don't really know what a Warren Beatty film is. Yeah, it's, he's one of those characters where his reputation is much bigger than the films that he actually made and what he actually did in them. 
the mythos of Warren Beatty is much bigger. The celebrity as yeah. well of Warren... Yeah. Uh, because that's something that I don't know about because I, obviously I wasn't alive during that era, but I imagine that he was in the rags constantly. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that, that was a euphemism. <laughs> um, but I imagine he, is in, he was in the papers, he was in the gossip columns constantly, and that just yeah. kept his star up. Yeah. As well as the Viagra. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we talk a little bit more about Dick Tracy? Have we got um, anything else to cover? Oh, Madonna. Yeah. Especially the reveal that she's the uh, the faceless man. Yeah, which is a really bad reveal because the funny thing is I was watching it with Jess last night and she was really tired and even <laughs> she deduced that Madonna was the faceless man about two minutes after it started. Yeah. The thing is about that reveal is it can only be one person because there's no other potential candidate for it to be. No. What do you feel about Madonna in this film as an actress? Because this is somebody that's obviously has always gotten quite a lot of stick for any of her acting um, escapades and endeavours. So what would you say about Madonna in this film? Because I don't think that she's particularly bad in this film. I think that on a character level, she isn't really given much to do. And when she is given anything to do, it's as a faceless entity. <laughs> yeah. Don't know. She's all right. I find the character a little bit problematic anyway, but yeah, it's where the film has an identity crisis where it doesn't really know what it wants to be because is it a film that's designed to play to kids? Yeah. You've got a film here where you've got all these grotesques, you've got all this, uh, you know, the shootouts and everything, and then you've got the kid, and then you've got someone like Madonna's character. They could be from two completely different films. And, um, you know, when you've got Madonna walking around in that, see-through dress and then pretty much every other line from her is about sex yeah it's a very die another day <laughs> yeah it is a little bit another madonna movie i have a brother who is a huge madonna fan mm. so <laughs> my opinion of her is often through him <laughs> so that, that i that, like i ask him was a vita well received he's like yes yes it was the, one of the best films ever made in fact yes <laughs> so, so that's where i get my madonna goss from mm. so andy do you have anything more to add really about dick tracy before we go into the stats and facts well it's a funny old thing with this film because you can talk about the look of the film Till the cows come home mm -hmm. and the the merchandising and the marketing push. But as we've mentioned before, the story is mm. almost non-existent. It's a concept. It's like a, a setup of Dick Tracy's a cop and he wants to get the main mobster who is Big Boy. That is really it. There's no grand scheme at play or anything like that or... I would say that this is where, like, the shadow kind of works, is that there's a villain with a plan and a plot to take over the world. I know that Al Pacino's character has a plot to take over the mobsters, but he's already set up from the beginning as being the leader of the gang. So nothing really happens in regards to him. His ambitions are achieved in the opening five minutes of his introduction. So... I would say that that's what this is lacking. It's lacking a villainous plot and for Dick Tracy to play into that plot in an interesting way. Yeah, yeah. It's just more of like a back and forth. Exactly. In yeah. one part of the film, one has the high ground and in the other part of the film, another has the high ground. The nearest you get to anything is that part of the film where they plant the bug in his office. Yeah. And then when they find the bug with the coffee going through the hole... And this is why I get the feeling that there's a lot of this 
story that's on the cutting room floor because they're going through the cast list there's a female gangster in the room played by Catherine O'Hara and I didn't realize that until I actually just went to read about it what yeah because a large part of this plot is in the montage yes it is 100% so I'm kind of feeling like that there's quite a few bits and bobs in terms of the connective tissue and what happens in the general villain's plan and everything that's Mm -hmm. just been surgically removed from the film at the expense of having all these songs Mm -hmm. and beefing up the Madonna part of the film. They've essentially tried to put the Madonna... The whole thing with Madonna should have been a subplot. Yes. Something playing on the peripheries of the... uh, And they've they've kind of edited it so they're both supposed to be at an equal standing with perhaps the Madonna stuff almost overtaking it at times. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't work because of that because we don't have any sense of a story. All we have is, as you say, this battle where at one point one of them is the high ground and then the other one has high ground and that's it. There's not much else at play in this world. And it's a shame that you have this kind of like grand world that you could explore in greater depth and um, maybe take us to some more darker corners of this colourful mobster world. Instead, we just kind of bounce between the same three or four locations as well during this uh, battle of wits. And I feel it's to the detriment as well because... You've got some wonderful actors playing some of these mobsters, like we haven't mentioned. Oh my gosh. William Forsyth playing Flat Top. He's great in this film as well. That's yeah. why he said maybe have one or two in the makeup and definitely keep Flat Top. Yeah. I love William Forsyth anyway. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine him at this point? I can imagine him looking in the mirror at one point. I mean, I love the design of his character, but I can yeah. imagine him looking in the mirror and going, I was in Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, dear. (laughs) Well, you could say the same about Al Pacino. Oh, definitely, yeah. I think he's having a time of his life, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's not at that Don Cacino stage yet. Don Cacino! Oh, gosh. I want to see the Don Cacino version of this. I want to see if they ever make a Dick Tracy sequel. They've got to have Al Pacino in full makeup recreate the Don Cacino scene. That would be magic. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, you are right in terms of the actors that are involved in this film. I mean, I want to talk about some cameos. And this, in a way, as well, is very Sin City because Sin City has a lot of Mm. big names in very small roles just because, you know, Robert Rodriguez was like, we can get them in for a couple of days, have them do a role, and then they can disappear. And in this film, you've got, like, Kathy Bates turns up for one scene as a typist. Yeah. And we've already talked about Dustin Hoffman, but though his character is actually more of a supporting character because he's in a few scenes and you've also got like dick van dyke who turns up for two i, I think maybe the dick van dyke stuff has some of it's been cut yeah i think and so. left to one side mm. and james carner which i've already mentioned he turns up for one scene again zero makeup definitely said no <laughs> <laughs> and then he's out of it yeah you've got uh, paul savino at the beginning oh of course paul savino yes yeah, of course lips yeah. This is why I feel like there's a lot on the cutting room floor because you've even got like Marshall Bell in the background yes, of a scene. As lips cop. Yeah, yeah, Marshall Bell. You see him for one close up. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous, really. I think uh, Warren Beatty was obviously calling in a lot of favours, but I do get the feeling that some of these people have been uh, left on the cutting room floor. I will yeah. say that one of the actresses that I really do like, I, I always, I've liked her and everything. It was so sad to see her go, Glenn Headley. Yeah, yeah. She's one of those actresses that I keep on finding her in other films as I, as I watch them. I've always liked her from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, in which she is just 
amazing and is for a film that's talked about as being my, one of Michael Caine's and Steve Martin's finest films, it's not a double header, it's a triple header. Mm. She is the third part of that trio that makes that film work. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I like her and I like her in this film as well. I wish her character was given more to do. Yeah, I mean, you could say that about everyone, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The film is so uninvolving in the way that it's been cut to ribbons some of the transitions between scenes are odd mm. and yeah because there's no real proper story that has like real stakes or anything it's just sort mm. of left flailing a little bit yeah and that means that the production design probably takes over more than it should do it's doing more heavy lifting isn't it yeah it's not being backed up by the strong yeah. story it's an almost movie there's something there <laughs> yeah there's something there and it's like they are almost there and I agree as well with the transitions because there are some very deliberate transitions that work, like in terms of like sweeping over the city and that type of thing. And then there are some that just feel like they've been cobbled together at last minute. And I, I think that that's all part of the editing, really. Mm. But yeah, so let's move on to the stats and facts. Let's talk a little bit about what happened once this film was released and about the budget and the box office. So... Starting with that, the budget and the box office first. The budget for this film was, as you did mention, Andy, it was an inflated $246 million after going mm-hmm. over budget. And um, the box office overall, so it opened to $23 million at the US, and then it made $103 million US total. Now, according to Wikipedia, it made overall $162 million. I don't know if that is including the worldwide gross, or if it's including the rental gross, which is something mm. that was uh, publicized as being around about $60 million. So I'll leave that one there, but $162 million worldwide. So perhaps a little bit more. It's either $60 million more than that or around that amount with some international money not taken into account. Mm. So we know that the bottom line is $162 million, which based on a budget of $46 million, it's not bad at all. It's only when you actually take into account the sheer amount of advertising. Yeah, so really, you should be saying, you know, it's against 101 million. Which is ridiculous to think about. Yeah. Because I can't believe that back then, they spent more on the advertising than they did the film, plus prints. Yeah. I mean, that's something that became more common later on, but in 1990? Yeah. That's ridiculous. This film is kind of like setting the template for what is the norm now. Yeah. Where you do spend more on your advertising than you do the film. And uh, it is a bit of one of those films that's kind of the end of an era in one sense, but the beginning of a new one. Yeah. In terms of its visual effects, it's like it's an analog film. But yeah. in its sound, it was the very first film to have all digital sound. And I would say it's the first film to have blanket marketing because i would say that the marketing for this film was even more extensive than the one that they did for batman because they had the theme parks which it now is a a major part of uh marketing these kind of films Mm -hmm. especially when you start talking about disney now of course yeah even like universal when you have a big film that's been a big hit you are guaranteed that there's going to be some sort of ride or attraction based on that absolutely Okay, so actually looking as well at the uh, the films that Dick Tracy opened against in 1990, it did open at number one at the US box office, and number two was Another 48 Hours, which I also think is a Walter Hill movie. Yes. And number three was Total Recall. Number four was Gremlins 2, The New Batch. 
Number five was Back to the Future Part 3. Number six was Pretty Woman. Number seven was Bird on a Wire. Number eight was The Adventures of Milo and Otis. Uh, that's one that our good friend Aiden has uh, <laughs> tried to make us watch. I, I think I ruined that film for him by oh. showing him how they made that film. It's got a horrendous and very upsetting making of. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, number nine was a film called Cadillac Man. And number 10 was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I, I will say... That's a fucking stacked weekend. That's great. That, that Some of is... my favourite films in that lineup. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a weekend with something for everyone. Yeah. That is a stacked weekend. So to open number one, I mean, you would have expected it to open number one with the amount of advertising they threw into this film. But even still, to open at number one in that weekend, that is something. Yeah, I mean, we're still talking an era where studios put their best out in a particular concentrated period of time. You know, that yes. summer movie season which seems mm-hmm. to have kind of disappeared a bit now really i think i do wonder if it'll come back though post coronavirus because yeah. there's going to be more control and a more limited amount of films that can be made in a post coronavirus world i think we're going to see a sudden influx of movies as everybody catches up with all of the films that they've postponed and then we're going to see like a dead space yeah It'll be interesting to see what's going to happen anyway, especially after all this, all the stuff that's gone on with HBO Max and Warner Brothers and everything. And it's just, uh... I'm still wondering if they're going to take a few steps back from that, considering yeah. Wonder Woman. It's, I know that it did quite well on the streaming, but it's, it's even underperformed next to Tenet. Yeah, and there's there's even an issue with the review embargo on that film as well. And yes, the way that they selected the reviewers based on who was more likely to give them a positive review. Yeah, I'm anticipating some seismic shifts anyway. So, yeah, so I think Wonder Woman 1984 is a film that you may see on this podcast over the next yeah. over the next uh, few weeks. Yeah, but uh, yeah, to be continued. And <laughs> um, so, in regards to the critical reception on Rotten Tomatoes, the Film holds a 63% rating with a 5.8 out of 10 average rating from critics. And the consensus is that Dick Tracy is stylish, unique, and undeniably a technical triumph, but it ultimately struggles to rise above its two-dimensional artificiality. Which I think is a rather apt, really. <laughs> it's, it's rather on the nut. Yeah, it's a very solid assessment. Yeah. Mm. And for the critic review, I um, once more rely on our old friend Empire Magazine with Ian Freer, who gave that film a 3 out of 5 rating, and he says, It's fun spotting stars under cakes of makeup, and the panache, great supporting cast, and a good-natured, old-fashioned feel make for a better movie than you remember. And I like to say, he gave it 3 out of 5. It's a bit more positive than i would provide but i still think the rating three out of five is probably what i would have provided mm-hmm. it as yeah, well yeah yeah and the audience score for this film on rotten tomatoes is 53 percent. so the audience are a lot less favorable and they gave it a 3.32 out of five average rating and imdb score also reflects a 6.1 out of 10 rating mm-hmm. which i think all of that is rather solid I think yeah. that's roundabout, yeah, where I would say I think that there's a plenty of ambition at play and there's plenty to marvel at. But, like, the nuts and bolts of it, that's where it falls apart. It's the story work. It's the foundational stuff that's... Uh, and, the, like you say, the editing, I think it's all been gutted out of it. I would be very much interested in seeing the extended version of this film to see what form it had taken. Yeah, yeah. And it's weird because I think, as I mentioned earlier... I wouldn't like to see an extended version of this film. I would like to see a re-edited version of this film. Yeah. Because I think that there's still stuff in this film that you can cut down. 
and other stuff that you can elaborate on that has yeah. clearly been cut down. Yeah. It is Disney, so I'm not holding my breath because they don't do stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. It's not going to happen. But maybe we might get to see some nice collector's edition in the in the future if they uh, yeah, hand yeah. it off to somebody else. Yeah. Okay, so that's all we have time for in this week's episode of Popcorn Digest. Join us next time when we'll be actually joined by a guest to review the film X-Files Fight the Future. Something I've been very much looking forward to covering on this show. Until then, I've been Gareth. And I've been Andy. And yeah fuck off when do we eat (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening Yeah.